In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from the fullness we have All received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. It's all led up to this. It is Christmas Eve day, and so today we get to do this mashup. We are combining our celebration of the fourth Sunday of Advent and our celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so when we're thinking of the Christmas story, this is probably not quite the passage that you'd expect. Because in John, there are obviously no angels or shepherds, no baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, no wise men from the east coming to pay him homage, no gold, no frankincense, no myrrh, and definitely no star. There's this talk about the word and the light and John the Baptist. And so we are very far from Bethlehem and the inn. And one of the interesting questions that every storyteller, no matter who you are, has to consider when when telling your story is to think about where are you going to begin? At at our, our life group, when you come for the first time, it's just the first time. And oh, by the way, a new one forming January 10th. So uh, be, be, beware of that. So, all right. But uh, when, you, when you come for the first time, you just have to give a brief, one of the things you do is give a brief overview, a very brief overview of your life. And so it's interesting to hear how people choose to tell the story of their own life. Where, where do they start when they're telling the story of their own life? What do you include? And so John's gospel, it offers us another and a very different way of telling the story of Jesus than the other Gospels, right? What's called the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic because that means like sin and optic, seeing the same way or in a similar way. And John is doing his own thing. And so, you know, Matthew, he starts with this genealogy of Jesus, and he's the one who gives us the the wise men coming from the east, bearing gifts. And Mark starts, boom, just hits the ground running. John the Baptist, and then we go right into Jesus' ministry. And Luke gives us, you know, the more traditional 
Christmas story, the ancient prophecies being fulfilled and, and, and the shepherds and the angels and the baby lying in a manger. But John doesn't start with any of that. John doesn't even start with the name Jesus. John's story of Jesus starts, in the beginning was the word. What's going on here? Well, I like to think of it a little bit like this. Uh, I'm a fan of, uh, of the podcast, Serial, even in its much maligned second season. I even did like season two of the Serial podcast. Um, and, and if you're not familiar, season two of Serial is about Bo Bergdahl, who was back in the news very recently. But he was the American soldier who abandoned his post in Afghanistan and was captured by the Taliban. And, and he set off the largest search and rescue operation in U.S. military history before a deal eventually, years later, was struck to bring him home. And so the basic question of Serial Season 2 is this. You know, what was Bo Bergdahl thinking June 30th, 2009, as he walked away from his post? And Serial host uh, Sarah Koenig begins Season 2 by saying that telling this story, telling Bo Bergdahl's story, the story of why he walked away from his post, is like this children's book that she used to read to her children called Zoom. And here's how she describes the book. She says, there are no words, it's just pictures. And it starts with these pointy red shapes. And then, next page, you realize that those shapes are a rooster's comb. Next page, you zoom out, and you see that the rooster is standing on a fence with two little kids watching him. Next page, zoom out again, they're in a farmhouse. And then zoom further, and you realize that all of it, the rooster, the kids, the farmhouse, are toys being played with by another child. And that that whole scene is actually an ad in a magazine. And that the magazine is in the lap of someone napping on a deck chair, and so on. Out and out it zooms, the aperture getting wider and wider and wider until the original image is so far away, it's unseeable. And her point is that in order to tell the story of Bo Bergdahl, you have to zoom in, you know, in some sense you zoom in very, very, very small on one person's life. And really what's going on, trying to figure out what's going on inside one person's head. But then you also have to zoom out very, very, very far to see the whole picture of, of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. It's like a camera lens with a zoom going very close and backing out very far. And so the beginning of the Gospel of John, what we call the prologue, the first 18 verses, is John showing us that in order to understand the significance of Jesus' story, in order to even tell that story, the first thing we've got to do is zoom way back. And so in this passage, we have something akin to really the beginning of the Bible, the first verses of Genesis, the beginning of everything. And then we also have something in this passage very, very small. Details about a man named John, who wasn't the light, but whose job was to testify to, to point to the light. And so what I want to do this morning is, is look at what John teaches us about the meaning of Christmas when we zoom way out. And then also see what it means for each and every one of us by zooming all the way in. And so zooming out, we're going to look at what John says about the word and the light. And zooming in, we're going to look at how the big story of Jesus intersects with our tiny and seemingly insignificant lives. How this big 
cosmic story is our story too. Because the Christmas story is about a baby being born to, born to a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem. But it is also the story of the existence and meaning of everything. And it's about each and every one of us. So let's start with this word. John 1.1, 1, 1, it reads in our translation, but this is how most translations begin. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And this is one of the deepest, most important, most confusing and difficult verses to translate in all of Scripture. In Greek it says, in the beginning was the logos, the word, the, the logos. And that word logos that we translate as word with a you know, capital W is a word to which really none of our English words can begin to do justice. On the difficulty of this task, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox theologian and classicist David Bentley Hart, who he recently published his own translation of the New Testament, and, and he wrote as he was in the work of translating John 1, he said, At the moment, I am wondering what should be done with the first verse of John's gospel. Certainly, no English term can begin to capture the depth and the scope that the term logos had acquired in the philosophical and religious cultures of Greek late antiquity. Word is so inadequate as to be practically meaningless. The thing was that this word, logos, meant quite a lot to the Greek-speaking pagans and Jews of the first century. To the Greeks, when you were talking about the logos, the logos was in answer to the question of why this world that is, is constantly in flux isn't just in a state of sheer chaos. You know, if change is a constant state, if you can never step in the same river twice, if underlying this world is, is, is constant movement and change, then why does the world appear so stable and predictable at the same time? How do you reconcile those two things, the, the underlying instability and chaos of everything and, and, and the outward appearance that, that everything is stable and predictable? This is a very sophisticated question that the ancient Greeks were asking. And so the answer that some gave was the answer, how do you reconcile this, this chaos and this order? The answer was the logos. It was the mind of God that controlled everything. It was the order behind the chaos. And there were many ancient Jews who, as they came into contact and lived in, in Greek culture, they were influenced by Greek thought. And so they used the logos to reconcile two things that were in, irreconcilable in their minds too. So the Greeks, they said, order and chaos, how, how do we reconcile those two? Logos. And so for the Jews who were influenced by Greek thought, they said, how do we reconcile a holy and transcendent God? Eternal, immortal, invisible, you know, perfect, holy. A transcendent God with the world of creation, which is the antithesis of all those things, right? If God can't directly touch creation because he's too pure for it and it's too unclean for him how can god influence anything that happens here as we clearly see in scripture that's what god is doing getting involved with what's happening here on earth and so the answer for these hellenistic jews was the logos for them the logos was like this tool that god could use to influence the universe it was like the plow you know that a, a farmer uses to till the field for Jews, the, the, the Logos was as close as you could get to God without actually coming into direct 
contact with God. The Logos was like, you know, the iPhone that you could use to FaceTime with God and, and, you know, vice versa. It was this intermediary that did the job. And so for Greeks, the Logos was the visible manifestation of the mind of God. And for Jews, it was the visible manifestation of the will of God. And so you can see why when, when John is trying to answer this question, well, who is Jesus? In the late first century, he would turn to a concept like the Logos, the Word. Because he needed to say that when, when we look at Jesus, we're not merely looking at a human being, a really righteous and amazing one at that. But in some strange way, we're looking directly at God. But in verse 14, John says something that, that no Hellenistic Jew or, or sophisticated Greek would have been willing to say. He says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or in, in the message paraphrase, there, Eugene Peterson renders it wonderfully. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This was something that you just wouldn't say. That the Logos wasn't just in the world, but in some way became of the world too. That this abstract idea became a concrete, all too real, physical person. But John had to say this. In order to explain the good news about Jesus to that culture, he had to use familiar terms and concepts. And then he had to stretch them beyond the weight that they had carried before this is always the challenge of communicating the gospel the story about jesus to people who aren't totally familiar with it the great 20th century missionary theologian uh leslie newbegin he wrote this in his commentary on john's use of the logos because as a missionary he he had gone from england and he had gone to um india which of course has you know millennia a sophisticated religious thought. And so Newbegin said, how do I bring the Christian message to these people? How do I translate this question? Who is Jesus? So he was acutely aware of, of the missionary challenge that underlies all of Scripture, communicating to people who don't quite understand who is Jesus. And so he says, but who is Jesus? That's the inescapable challenge of the missionary. How do you answer that question in a way that is faithful to the event and the person itself and yet intelligible to the person you're explaining it to? Basically, if no one knows who Jesus is, you go into a new culture, how do you explain to them this is who he is in a way that makes sense to them but is also true to the person and event that, that, that you're describing? And so he says, the missionary has to begin by assuming a common framework of language, of experience, of inherited tradition, of axioms and assumptions embodied in the forms of speech. He or she can only introduce what is new by provisionally accepting what is already there in the minds of the hearers. But what if the new thing which he wants to introduce is so radically new that it calls in question all the previous axioms and assumptions, all inherited tradition and all human experience, so that even language itself cannot serve to communicate it? What if the new thing is in fact the primal truth by which all else has to be confronted and questioned? How do you begin to explain that which must in the end be accepted as the beginning of all explanation? That is the problem of the evangelist. I couldn't have put it better myself. John is in a tough position. 
How do you explain the meaning of Christmas when Christmas is the beginning of the meaning of everything? And so by beginning with Jesus, the word became flesh. John is alerting the listener from the very beginning of the story that the author of this story has cast himself in the central role in that story. He has become a character in it. And above all else, in starting this way, John is alerting us to the fact that what he's about to tell us, because of that, the very definition of the word God is going to need to be redefined. In the words of of one great commentator, when we read the prologue, we are forced to conclude that the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, then the book itself, the book of John, is blasphemous. And just one last word about the word. One way to think about, for us to think about what this means about who Jesus is, is this. The way that our audible words express our invisible thoughts is the way that the divine human Jesus relates to the invisible God. And so what John is up to, he's he's telling us that if we really want to know who God is and what he's been up to all along, we have to take a long, hard look at Jesus. So that's one aspect of John's Christmas story, that the author of the story has entered the story itself and is one of its characters. And so we've got to keep that in mind as, as we continue with John through Easter. And uh, as I was reflecting on this passage, I had the opportunity to be interviewed by a student from De La Salle, um, that very, very fine high school, as, as the Hups know. And uh, students who are seniors at De La Salle have a religion prog- uh, project where they have to interview someone from a faith tradition that is different, uh, different than their own. And so um, every couple of years, I get a call from a student um, who says, do you have, I need to turn this project in tomorrow. Um, could I come visit you? <laughs> It never fails. It never fails. I try to make time for these students. And, and so she, she was a really nice young woman. Um, and so she was interviewing me about my beliefs and my job. And, and this one question that she asked me struck me. She said, how do you picture God? How do you picture God? And I was studying this passage at the time. So I was able to answer in sophisticated Sunday school fashion. Jesus. John's Christmas message is that we can picture God as Jesus. So that's the word. And then the other thing I want to touch on when we're zooming way out is this idea of of the light. John calls Jesus the light. In in, in verse 9, he calls him the true light that gives light to everyone. And in verse 5, he says that Jesus is the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so each week of Advent, we've gotten to light a candle to symbolize the coming of Jesus, to bring hope, peace, joy, and love into the world. And so John's Christmas story teaches us that one of the meanings of Christmas is that Jesus' birth signals the dawning of a new day, just just like a sunrise. But I want to go back to to verse 5 in this, this phrase, and the darkness has not overcome it. Because another way it gets translated is as the darkness has not comprehended it, the light. And so really John is doing two things at once here. We don't have to pick. We get to dwell in the purposeful ambiguity of this phrase. So darkness has not overcome the light and it's not comprehended the light. And so darkness in the Bible, it means both evil and suffering and ignorance. 
And so John's message is that with the entry of Jesus into the world, he's come into a world that is, is filled with darkness, which means it's filled with opposition to God, evil and sin, and is filled with ignorance of God. And so John's message is that what the world needs is for a light to come from outside of it, to vanquish the evil and to deal with the ignorance we're living in. So that's another meaning of Christmas from this zoomed out story. It's that in a world filled with darkness, Jesus is the light from God. We need to overcome evil and understand who God is. Throughout the rest of the gospel, we'll see Jesus casting out evil. And we'll see him bringing knowledge of God where there is ignorance. So this is another, at the beginning, we get sort of the full meaning of the story in its brevity. And then there's the last thing. What happens when we zoom all the way in on what this story means for each and every one of us? Because we've seen so far that when we zoom all the way out, we, we, we get this grand story about in the beginning was the word. It's, it's a repetition of Genesis 1-1 and this grand cosmic perspective, right? What, the first thing God says in Genesis is let there be light. And with Jesus, we get this word that brings light. But what does it mean for us? How does this big story become our story? How does it intersect with our reality? What does it mean for you and me that this logos put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood? The key to understanding that has to do with verse 12, where it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so the Christmas story ought to draw a response from us. When we hear the word and see the light, John says that our response should be to believe and receive. Because when we do that, we become God's children. And this is an incredible message because it says that your relationship with God is not determined by your circumstances or your heritage, by your ethnicity or class. The only thing that determines your status as a child of God is when you encounter Jesus. How do you respond? Do you receive and believe? And so this is the radical claim that the gospel of John is going to make. And so again and again, we're going to see the different responses that Jesus gets in this gospel. The contrast between those who welcome Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, those who follow Jesus, and those who reject and deny him. So that's the great missionary message that John's Christmas story has for us. It is for everyone who is willing to listen to the word and see the world through the illumination of this light. And the great news of this passage is that anyone can become a child of God by faith. So the good news of Christmas, it can be zoomed out so far that it encompasses all of the universe. And it can be zoomed in on each and every human heart. That's how vast the love of God in Jesus Christ is. It's big enough to fill the entire cosmos with the glory of God. And it's small enough to live right in here. That's the meaning of Christmas. It's bigger and smaller than we could ever imagine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.